You already know the ending to this story. We're going to change it. Yeah, baby! Please open your eyes. Take this. Remember who you answer to. What is your name? This is where it kind of goes off the deep end. Welcome to Movieland with CJ Johnson. On ABC Local Radio, digital and Hello, online. and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. Good episode today. I'm going to be speaking to Adam Nimoy. He is the son of the late, great Leonard Nimoy. He's made a film about his dad and his dad's most famous role, of course, Mr. Spock on Star Trek. The film is called For the Love of Spock. It's out around the world in various formats. It's screening at the 2016 Sci-Fi Film Festival in Australia in late October, specifically on the 22nd of October, I do believe. Go to scififilmfestival.com to find out more information. And I'll be reviewing The Girl on the Train, which is sure to be the biggest film of next week, at least in terms of the box office, and Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is currently the world's number one at the box office. Two big films, my reviews. One of those films is good, one is not. Review time. The Girl on the Train is an effective, well-constructed and tightly wound adaptation of Paula Hawkins' 2015 bestseller, which did not, contrary to the poster copy, shock the world, but which did give readers a juicy little post-Gone Girl misty mystery to read on, well, the train. Emily Blunt stars as an alcoholic divorcee who has a very bad blackout, the forgotten details of which may hold the key to a crime. Everything else deserves to be withheld, as this is a mystery through and through, and the less you know, the better. Pity the trailer doesn't adhere to the same restraint. With only nine speaking parts by my count, lots of atmospheric upstate New York fog and excellent performances from Blunt and Rebecca Ferguson, specificity and containment are the keys here. Director Tate Taylor, the help, deftly juggles the book's relatively complex structure. Worth seeing, just avoid the trailer. That is The Girl on the Train, sure to be a huge worldwide success. A film that is already a huge worldwide success, which must be entirely due to Tim Burton's name on the poster, is Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Yet another muddled, overlong Tim Burton fantasia. Miss Peregrine's Home for Blah 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 works best as a young love story between Jake, Asa Butterfield, the boy from Hugo, who has grown into a very good-looking young chap, and Emma, Ella Purnell, the girl on the poster who's floating in the air. And the last half hour is a rather excellent extended action sequence. The beginning and middle, however, are laborious. Jake's granddad, Terence Stamp, tells Jake stories of a home for peculiar children he attended in his youth. Through some form of time-slippery flippity-gibbet, Jake heads back to said school and gets to gape at the interesting kids who do the things they do on the poster. That's another good scene, I suppose, but only five minutes of one. At two hours and seven minutes, that's one hour and 32 minutes of not-good movie to fidget through. Dull. 
This is Bruce Beresford, and you're listening to Movie Land. The documentary For the Love of Spock is screening in Australia at the 2016 Sci-Fi Film Festival. Check scififilmfestival.com for more information. I gather it's screening in other parts of the world at other festivals, perhaps on VOD, DVD, etc., etc. Just Google it. You'll find it for the love of Spock. Of course, it's about Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock. It's been made by his son, Adam Nimoy, who joins me on the phone from Los Angeles. And I asked him about uh, why this film, why now? Well, my, my dad and I had made a documentary film uh, prior to this one about his life in Boston, Massachusetts, growing up uh, during the Depression. We were in... Boston in 2013, uh, filming him walking around town and and having Dad reminisce about his experiences growing up where he lived and his neighborhood uh, and the various places where he had odd jobs all around town. Um, and it was a very good bonding experience between us. We had a really good time making the film. And I simply really wanted to kind of replicate that experience by making another project with him. Uh, and the idea of a Spock documentary came up because I was aware that we were not that far away from the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. So in November of 2014, I approached him about the idea of making this documentary um, as a kind of a, a gift to the fans to celebrate half a century of Star Trek and of Mr. Spock. And that's something that my dad was very interested in immediately. Uh, he signed on to and uh, began doing research. In fact, shortly after we began working on the film together, he proudly reported to me that he had done some of his own research and Googled Spock's ears and came back with 150,000 websites <laughs> uh, ac across, you know, across the planet that referenced those famous ears. So uh, this is something that we just really wanted to collaborate on together as a way of celebrating Star Trek. Right. It's specifically websites specifically devoted to Spock's ears, 150,000. That's just phenomenal. It, that must have been just overwhelming for him and also yet again for you was spock just overwhelming for you your entire life yeah i mean the th the interesting thing about my dad was that he was never you know that did kind of impress him i mean he was never jaded by the impact that spock had on culture uh and the permutations of spock all over the world i mean all throughout his life he would tell me about people he would meet or experiences he would have um, based on uh, people identifying him with Spock, and uh, they were always uh, wonderful, interesting, heartwarming experiences, and he was never tired of it, uh, which I found to be a, a really wonderful trait, you know, that he was very grateful for the role and grateful that, uh, that Spock had such uh, an overwhelming, um, you know, kind of resonance with people everywhere. Mm. So, and the same for me, you know. I mean, it's kind of wonderful to be seeing images of Spock. He's so iconic the look of Spock. Uh, I have my own collection of many, many images of Spock, and I just, it's just, it's very, uh, it gives me a very kind of warm feeling inside, for lack of a better term, a, a nice warm and fuzzy feeling inside. When I see images of him everywhere in, <laughs> in the most out-of-the-way places, it's fun. It's really a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, I unfortunately haven't been able to see the film yet. I very much look forward to seeing it. I can't wait, actually. But I do know that your dad wrote a book called I'm Not Spock, and then he followed it up with a book called I Am Spock. So, obviously, there was conflicting emotions there. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we don't go in this in great detail. We do uh, make a lot of references to I Am Spock because we use the audio recording of that book to sort of narrate a number of these segments of the film where Dad talks about his various experiences in Star Trek and his personal experiences and so forth. Um, the I Am Spock book was written in the mid-70s, and, and my dad spent his entire career uh, thereafter uh, explaining the meaning of the title because it was <laughs> interpreted as meaning that he was distancing himself Spock. He, he was an actor and could do more work other than Spock. Uh, Spock is just a character. You know, he was, he was sort of, uh, people felt that he was kind of denigrating the character, which was not the case at all. He was simply trying to clarify with fans who were who would oftentimes completely confuse him with Spock. They really thought that he was Mr. Spock, when the fact of the matter is his name is Leonard Nimoy and he comes from Boston, not Vulcan. And people had trouble separating the fiction from the reality. And that's all that that really was all about. Um, and, and yet, uh, because there was no new Star Trek during that time period, uh, people, you know, it was exploding in the syndication market. Um, the episodes of Star Trek were being played five times a day during the week and, and weekend marathons, and the, the fan base was exponentially growing, but there was no Star Trek, and people believed there wasn't any new Star Trek because Leonard Nimoy didn't want to play Spock anymore, so they were angry with him. Oh, no. So he, he spent, yeah, he spent a long time trying to explain that, uh, that he mistitled the book, and um, he had always felt that Spock was uh, a role that he, that he cherished, and if he only had one role to repeat over again and play, it would be Spock. Oh, I am really glad to hear that because there has been a sort of historical anomaly that has come down. The, there is a sort of mythos out there that Spock was a burden on his back. Right. Not, not true. I mean, uh, certainly um, he may have been slightly typecast in the role and that people saw him only as Spock and, and had trouble envisioning him in other parts. I mean, he had a fight. Uh, for some of the parts that he got. But uh, the fact is that the, it's a two-sided coin. The, the other side of the coin is that Spock also brought a tremendous amount of opportunity to my dad, uh, particularly in the, in the theater he worked, uh, he did in the 70s. He did a lot of plays um, in Summerstock Theater and traveling shows, and he was on Broadway, and uh, a lot of that was brought to him because of his celebrity and because of the popularity of Spock. So I think my dad recognized that. It, you know, you have to take the good with the bad. I mean clearly his most famous role, but also he was given many opportunities to do other things that I think satisfied him artistically. And it gave him the chance to direct, too. Correct. Spock also gave him the leverage that he needed to to get Paramount to, to uh, allow him to start directing the, the feature films, uh, culminating in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, one of the you know, one of the most successful, the most successful, really, of the first six films. I love that one. The original crew. Yeah, it's a great film, and, and Dad really came into his own. Um, but again, this was an opportunity brought to him because of the popularity of Mr. Spock. Now, what sort of surprising things did you discover about your father making this film? Well, there were a number of surprises. I think lately I'm kind of focused on what, what really shocked me was... Um, I, 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 it's just kind of like comes to mind is this, uh, uh, the slash fantasy. It was, I, I didn't really understand this or know this, but there's something called the Kirk Spock slash fantasy about people who have uh, 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 identified uh, the, the, uh, the, a gay relationship between Kirk and Spock. <laughs> and there's been a number of stuff. It, I never even knew about it, but there was a video on YouTube that we found 
And we include this as a part of the film because it really, there's a big following of these people who have imagined this homoerotic relationship between the two. And the fact of the matter is, it's so interesting, there was a Time Magazine article about this, is that the, the fact is that these two guys, Kirk and Spock, have had a model relationship. They have been together for years. They have been through so much together. They have always watched out for each other, watched each other's backs. They come in conflict with each other. They resolve their conflict. They're the best of friends. They are a model relationship. It just so happens that they're, it's a bromance. They're a couple of guys. So that was a kind of an eye-opener for me. And also, I think, the fact that my dad had such an impact on the new Enterprise cast. Mm. Uh, under the J.J. Abrams reincarnation of Star Trek. But we interviewed the, all the new cast we interviewed for the, uh, this documentary, and uh, they hands down said that even though Dad was not a part of this latest installment in Star Trek Beyond, that he still was very much present. They really felt his spirit resonating with them and inspiring them to do great work as a part of the Star Trek franchise. They felt validated by him that he participated with them, and... Um, that had a big impact on them, and it just kind of blew my mind when they all individually told me very much the same thing. And, of course, the latest movie, Star Trek Beyond, is very much a tribute to your father. Absolutely, and uh, I think a very warm and loving way just to bid him adieu and, uh, and farewell. Um, very touching, I think, the way they did it, and, uh, and just very pleased to see that he has continued to resonate even with them. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the things we all loved the most was Spock and Bones and their jib-jabbering, and there's a lot of that in the new film. Right, there is. And we touch on that in, in my film, in the documentary as well, the interaction. The fact that it's really an ensemble situation where we really don't have Spock without Kirk and McCoy. We, they, he really needed them to play off of, and when the writers saw the chemistry that was developing between them, they started to write more about this banter, this, this antagonism, uh, love-hate between um, McCoy and Spock, which I think worked beautifully. And, of course, we had an excellent actor uh, fulfilling that role in DeForest Kelly, which is fabulous. Yeah, he was just great. Uh, so I, yeah, so I think the triumvirate really worked. It was very special. They had a, a, a very unique chemistry, and they knew it. And um, I think that is also a large part of the, of the success of Spock. Now, is it correct your father passed away while you were making this movie? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we were in the, the, uh, the kind of development stages of outlining what it would look like. I was writing a script and giving an outline form to my father and, and going over with him uh, what, the, what the film could look like, how we, you know, the kind of devices we could use uh, to get across this whole life and history of Mr. Spock. Um, it was going to be with him while he was alive. He was very clear that he wanted it to be a movie centered on, excuse me, Mr. Spock and not the life of Leonard Nimoy. My dad had a great sense of humility and wanted to make it very clear this was not the Leonard Nimoy show. Yeah. We are making a Spock documentary. But after he passed away, it became clear immediately that we needed to expand the film to include the life and legacy of Leonard Nimoy as well. And then, and then that expanded because more and more people came out supportive of the idea that I should include, include my own personal journey with Spock and my dad because that would add an element of the film that would make it unique. So the film is a balance between those three. Number one, is a, it's a Spock-centric film. We, we emphasize Spock. We give Spock more screen time than anything else in the film. But after that, we start talking about my father's artistic career. And then third and last is my relationship, uh, the ups and downs of my relationship with my father and with Spock over the years. 
culminating in a very close and loving relationship we had the last five years of my dad's life. I'm glad to hear it, and I'm sorry for his passing, as are many millions and millions and millions and millions of people around the world, but I'm glad we have this film to look forward to. Thank you very much for joining me on Movieland. Thank you so much, TJ, for having me. Take care and live long and prosper. Live long and prosper.